On this episode of Serverless Chats, we look back at all the best moments of 2019. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 29. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly, and you're listening to Serverless Chats. We are coming to the end of 2019, and it has been an absolute honor to chat with all of the amazing guests that I've had on the podcast this year. So I thought that it would be fun to go through all of these episodes and pull out something that I found insightful or inspiring and certainly worthy of another listen. Uh, So here are my favorite moments from the first year of Serverless Chats. So let's start with episode number one, where I had a really great conversation with Alex Debris about DynamoDB and the learning curve that you face when switching from something like RDBMS. So he explains that the benefits outweigh the trade-off of that learning curve. That's really the crux of this whole issue. And I think there are two issues there. One is that short to medium term learning curve that you're talking about. And it's a steep learning curve because you really got to um, figure that out. And, and it's in such a a sensitive area, right? Your data. You don't want to lose data or or having to perform a migration down the road is costly. Um, so you really want to do it right the first time, but you often don't have enough experience the first time. So that can be pretty tricky. So I think there's that first issue of of just learning it. And and to me, I think it's worth putting in the time to learn it and maybe using it in some smaller areas first and really getting the feel for it and then um, um, and then figuring out how you can use it in more areas down the road. Um, the second issue I think with DynamoDB, and this is a more persistent one, is you know DynamoDB is great if you know your access patterns and they're not going to change. So you know um, all the way you're going to read from your database, you know all the ways you're going to write to to your database, and um, you know that's going to stay persistent over time. That's going to scale up as as high as you want it to go. Um, the difficulty if you're bringing a new product to market or um, something like that, you know, your data model is probably shifting as you're adding new features, you're adding new entities, you're changing how you're querying, how you're filtering, all that stuff. And DynamoDB is not well suited for changing your access patterns down the road. Um, you know, it's schemaless, but, but schemaless doesn't mean sort of uh, free flowing, do everything you want, because you really got to think about how am I going to access this data? And if that changes, uh, you're in big trouble. And so I think that's one area that's that's still pretty tricky, right? Where you have serverless is so great for rapid experimentation and really shipping quickly and and changing stuff and, and focusing on business value but then you have a database um, that's um, sort of locked in once you've once you've set up your core data model and how do you both evolve your data model um, with your app yeah on episode number two I spoke with Nitsin Shapira and he actually brought up this point about sort of the built-in retry mechanisms in the cloud, which I think is really, really interesting uh, and certainly something that people need to know more about to make sure the cloud or let the cloud handle failure for them. Um, so he was talking a little bit about this and also why item potency is so important. And one of the things I'm, I'm talking about is, is the fact that the, these retries are something that is um kind of considered as a good practice by the cloud provider uh to recover from errors so for example if a function fails let's try to run it two more times uh, and then see what happens so if it's an sns message so we're going to run it two more times as long as the message is 
new enough. So that's that's something that is not really um, written in any programming book or software design book, but this is something that the architects of AWS thought would be a good idea. And it is a good idea sometimes, but for the developer, uh, it can be very confusing. So when, when it happens, usually it's very confusing because you just didn't know that this is the same uh, invocation running one or two more times. And when uh, you have to think about it, it's very difficult to plan. So this is where uh, concepts such as idempotency uh, come into action when you, how are you supposed to write code that it can run multiple times without having a bad effect or bad things happen. So eventually it comes to the fact that people can't really plan an application that will be retried as many times as wanted with everything going right. So it's basically kind of a constraint that you have to live with. Uh, you need to try and take it to your advantage when possible. But most of the time, uh, I think many people would prefer to just go it, to do it the standard way. So don't try and run my code again without telling me because I'm not sure what's going to happen. On episode number three, I was speaking with Marcia Vilshalba about AWS AppSync. And so, of course, the discussion of GraphQL versus REST APIs comes up, and she explains why they can work together and why GraphQL is very efficient for mobile applications. So first of all, GraphQL and REST are not like enemies, so you have not to choose one or the other. And I think that's an important starter for the discussion because people are like, well, I will ditch all my REST endpoints to use GraphQL. No, we are not talking one or the other. They are two different things. So GraphQL is um, is a specification that when you implement, it has, uh, usually it sits between all your microservices and your clients. And it does like an entry point for your application. So you can, uh, instead of having multiple different endpoints and point to different microservices independently, you can have one, one entry door. And, and that's really convenient. For example, if you are doing, um, I don't know, a mobile app and you have multiple different microservices with different people working on them, then you can combine, uh, these, uh, all these requests and responses into something that is uh, like a contract between the client and the server as a big entity. So that helps a lot the client developers because that's one of the big problems when, when client developers are starting to work in a project, they need to get really understanding the whole backend architecture. And sometimes there is really not a lot of need for them to understand that. So GraphQL will provide a, a contract where all the possible operations are specified all the it's a strongly typed language, so all the uh, operations have uh, requests and response with really clear defined uh, types that they have strongly typed. So you know exactly what you can put in, what you can get out, and then when you do these operations, that you get a type back or many types back, and then you can uh, in your request you can ask for exactly the same uh, the the right fields that you want from this type. Because that's another problem with REST in general for mobile developers, that they need to uh, overfetch a lot of information a lot of the time and do the filtering in the client. And when you're working in mobile apps, then if you are fetching a lot of information, that's a lot of bandwidth and you might need to do a lot of requests to the backend. And GraphQL will unify everything in one response request. So 
it's in a way quite efficient for for mobile development. On episode number four, I spoke with Chase Douglas about the difference between traditional software development and serverless software development or cloud-based software development. And right now, we said there may be a lack of tooling uh, and best practices for teams to develop, but Chase thinks that's going to change. Yeah, serverless itself is a different way of building, developing, and including testing applications. And one of the things that we have to step back and recognize is that at the end of the day, we're still developing software, we're still testing software, uh, but we need to find the right ways to be efficient at how we do those. It's slightly different in a serverless world. And so it, it, we once we find the right patterns and once we start to use those as an individual or in a team, uh, things actually speed up once again. So there's, a, there's an interesting play here, uh, but it's all about just finding the right uh, mix and match of how to, to do the things we're familiar with when it comes to development and testing. So another amazing thing that launched this year was EventBridge. And I'm a huge fan of the service because I absolutely think it's going to change the way that we develop serverless applications. And on episode number five, Mike Deck was on speaking about this. And one of the questions that always comes up is, what's the difference between EventBridge and SNS and Kinesis and so forth? And when do you use one over the other? Here's Mike's take on that. So I think SNS is probably the most similar sort of service, if you want to think about it that way, um, in terms of SNS gives you the ability to publish messages and then fan those out to multiple subscribers. Uh, SNS has the concept of a subscription policy uh, that allows you to kind of filter messages per subscription. So again, you can get similar kind of features to the way that rules work uh, within EventBridge. Um, you know, the, the big difference on the SNS side versus EventBridge is uh, for custom events anyway, the, the downstream targets that you have accessible within SNS um, is more limited than what is available in EventBridge. So EventBridge has 17 different AWS services that you can uh, integrate with uh, natively. So you don't have to sort of pass through a Lambda function necessarily if you just want to go and, yeah, drop something on a Kinesis stream or Firehose or uh, kick off a step function, et cetera. Um, so I think that's one of the big key differences there is, is the sort of richness of the, the kind of targets as well as, as the source piece that we'll talk about here in a, in a little bit. Um, I think where SNS really shines is when uh, you're in the super high throughput or really massive fan out. So if you've got thousands or millions of subscriptions that you want to um, have for a single topic, uh, SNS is definitely the way to go. Um, similarly, if, you, if you're really trying to push, you know, millions of TPS or something like that um, through a particular topic, uh, SNS is a better option uh, for when you've got those those really kind of massive high throughput workloads. Um, so yeah, so I think those are the, those are kind of the key callouts. And then yeah, talking about Kinesis a little bit. So Kinesis um, gives you more of a streaming model. So everyone that's going to consume that stream is going to see every single message on that stream. Um, you know, you're somewhat limited in total number of people that can consume a single stream, and and each individual consumer would be sort of responsible for uh, kind of filtering out any messages that they weren't potentially interested in. On episode number six, I had Eric Peterson on, and I absolutely love the way that he talks about the need for developers to understand cloud costs. If you're a SaaS vendor, uh, you know, your, your value delivery chain is, is built on top of cloud 
that's your cost of goods. That's your gross margin. You need to understand that if you're going to deliver a profitable product to to the market, and and you want your you want that conversation to be part of your entire organization, um, because I mean the reality is is that the buying decision is being made by your engineering team now, right? They they uh, choose. Am I going to use this type of instance or that type of instance? Am I going to use, am I going to implement this kind of code or that kind of code? They they make a buying decision every moment of of, of every day. Um, you know, essentially, you know, every time, you know, every line of code that they write, they're making a buying decision, and um, and so you have to think about that. And then it, it gets even more complicated though because um, there are so many intertwined, and particularly in the serverless world, which is so I think honestly. I'm sure our listeners here will appreciate, you know, our point of view is that we think we believe serverless is the future of all computing, but you know, it's it's um, it's even more powerful because you create these very um, uh, uh, interesting applications that are um, that that are composed of lots of different services. It's not just Lambda compute. It's I have Lambda connected SNS passing to SQS, DynamoDB, Kinesis, all these things flowing together. And I'm not just going to the cheat sheet on Amazon and saying, well, how much does it cost for one hour of compute to like try to estimate my cost? No, I now have to think through that that whole story. And I think it's kind of a shame that actually a lot of, for most organizations, they consider the state of the art there to be, well, let's just try it and see what happens. <laughs> and, um, and a lot of times they try it in uh, test and uh, they go, oh, it looks like it's going to cost a couple bucks. Great. Let's ship it. And once it gets into production, it's a much different story, um, and uh, and they just don't they they really organizations really struggle with this, and it's unfortunate. On episode number seven, I had Taylor Otwell on talking about his new project, Vapor, and I asked him what he thought the future of serverless would be, and it actually led to some interesting insights into the future of the cloud. Yeah, I think the next five years will be huge for serverless. I really do. I think it, I think it is the future because. What's the alternative, really? Like more complexity, more configuration files, more weird container orchestration stuff. I don't really think that's the future, you know, that people are going to naturally gravitate towards. I think people want simpler things. And I think at the end of the day, serverless is simpler. And it's going to only get more simpler as the tooling gets better, as the platforms get better. And to me, it's the real end game, you know, of the whole of the whole server thing. Um, it's just, it's just deploying your code and you focus on your code and let the provider focus on the infrastructure. On episode number eight, I was speaking with Ron Ribbonzaft about observability in modern applications. And he brought up a really good point that things like CPU and monitoring those types of metrics might not be that important anymore. So it starts with the change in our infrastructure and our way we code. So if we used to have like this monolithic application running on our on-prem servers, so the things that you wanted to monitor is like, what is the network throughput and what is the CPU usage and hard disks and so on. And, you know, just making sure the application, the process itself is alive there. But shifting to more modern application, uh, which I think in my, in my agenda, modern application is something that you don't mess with the infrastructure around it. You get most of the services out of the box working for you in a matter of configurations that you just can you know, tick some boxes that I want this feature and so on. And you just built your own business logic to that where it can run, I don't care if, whether it's in your server, 
something like a function as a service or other thing. So this is modern application. And in this kind of modern application, there is a big difference in what you want to monitor. Honestly, we're doing monitoring to make sure our business works. Our application is our business, so we want to make sure it works. So things like how much CPU is being consumed or network throughput or all these kind of metrics that just show me charts about infrastructure are getting irrelevant over time. Like, for example, if I used to have a chart of how much uh, CPU usage my database is consuming. So now I don't really care if I'm going to a managed database, fully managed one, not like a semi-managed. I don't really care about the CPU or anything else. I just want to make sure it works and my application can speak to it at the right timing, at the right performance, and it gets the right results. On episode number nine, I spoke with Gunnar Grosh about chaos engineering, and he made a really great point about how running these experiments can really build confidence in your application. Yeah, well, uh, since the purpose is to to find out if the system is resilient to failure, um, we look at if our customers, if or if our system has a, a problem, are our customers getting the experience they should? Is the system behavior behaving good enough for our customers to get the experience. Uh, or uh, another thing might be that we have downtime time, we have issues that are costing us money. Um, so, and as you mentioned, is our monitoring working as it should? Uh, so we have quite a lot of things that uh, might in- intend us to, to actually do with the chaos experiments. Um, and to do it, well, it, it builds confidence. When we do the experiments, we build confidence and we know uh, how everything within the system and the organization behaves in, in the face of failure. On episode number 10, I spoke with Slobodan Stojanovic about testing serverless applications. And he made a really great point that if you switch to infrastructure as code, testing becomes a lot easier. So especially when you're using serverless application and when you have uh some kind of uh, infrastructure as a code, like CloudFormation or something else, Terraform and things like that. Basically, most of the time, it's just one command uh, that will spin up you a new environment and it will take you like two, three minutes, maybe 10, but it's not like hours or days anymore. So it makes sense. Uh, and you don't pay for environment that no one is using. So it makes sense for you to have like different environments for each developer, but also different environments for your manual testers. So Every uh, person in your QA team can have their own environment, but also if you have a big feature that you want to test for a few weeks or something like that before you release it, you don't uh, you don't stop your uh, block your test environment. Instead, you can spin up a new environment and you can still have your test environment for some other smaller features that you want to ship in the meantime. On episode number 11, I spoke with Hillel Solo and he explained who is responsible for serverless security. Now, I, I'm a big fan of the idea that security owns overall responsible for security. And, and if you don't have a security organization in your business, then you're, you're going to find out sooner or later that that was a mistake. You need somebody whose job it is to care, right? But that person can no longer imagine they can solve the problem on their own. You know, I think we we were able to imagine for a while that we could throw up a WAF in front of our application and then feel good about ourselves. I think we're recognizing that's not really going to be enough. And so, yeah, we need developers to be empowered mainly to do the right thing in the easiest possible way. 
we need DevOps to help us automate the process of making sure those things happen. So kind of a, a trust and verify model. Sure, you own IAM. Sure, you go ahead. But at the same time, there's stuff in the pipeline that's going to make sure that if you go too far left or right, uh, there's guardrails in, you know, in place to help uh, put you back on track. Uh, then security needs to know that even though they put some of that stuff in the DevOps pipeline and that's supposed to give them a lot of uh, good hygiene and posture, stuff will still make it into the cloud in a way that's not ideal, whether it's because it looked okay when it was deployed and then later on we discovered it had a third-party vulnerability we didn't know about or because it was grandfathered in, it got some waiver, it bypassed something, it's been there, et cetera. We still need to worry about, okay, what's actually happening at runtime? Uh, can we know where our risk is and can we go deal with that? And can we still, yeah, look for SQL injection, look for code injection, all those things still have to happen just in a way that lives it well in a serverless application, scales with a serverless application, doesn't get in the way of a serverless application. So yeah, we need to layer all those things on, empower everybody to own their layer and make sure somebody else is responsible for verifying everybody else's job. On episode number 12, I was speaking with Emmer Shamdan about reducing MTTR in serverless environments, and that drifted into a little bit about chaos engineering. So the best way to get prepared for an incident is actually to experience it before. But no one wants to experience some, something bad like over and over again, right? So, and the, the, the nice thing that we can do with chaos engineering is that you can just get yourself prepared by actually stimulating this, these kind of problems. So you can ask yourself, what if this third-party API that I'm using starts to respond slower? What if the DynamoDB that I'm just leaning on like completely starts to not to not to respond? So you can you can run such kind of an chaos engineering experiments, and in this case, you should you should be knowing that what what will happen, and you should be knowing that not 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 just because of not from the perspective of what to do but how to inform the customers, how to inform the upper management, how to have the, let's say, the uh, retro. You can understand how you can respond this kind of situations uh, from many different perspectives. On episode number 13, I was speaking with Effie Merdler Kravitz about the role a developer now plays, not just with development, but also with security and also with operations of serverless applications. Yeah, I, I, you know, I've never talked about security things because I think that security again, it's, it's, you know, especially in today's world with security so prominent, um, I don't think that developers can be specialized in security. They need to know security. They need to know how they write the code. But I think that security needs someone who is specialized in security. Now it depends on the, uh, on the, uh, uh, whether you are in a big corporate or in a startup whether you want to hire someone who specializes in security or you're doing some kind of uh, uh, training for your developers uh, to be security specialists. So that's a different question, but I think that security is a different role. But you've mentioned also DevOps, and uh, I've mentioned also in, uh, on, uh, on uh, previous notes uh, the, uh, the QA. And I think the DevOps and QA today in the serverless are actually one role it's developer devops and qa are is the same person it's the same developer who is doing everything and i think that in the end it produces a, a better product because it's a developer a developer knows how to test his code he knows how to write the uh, the testing in order to think about all the various uh, uh, edge cases that might appear Either the developer or doing the code review, maybe other developers, but I mean the developers themselves and not the 
as someone who is external to the development process. The same thing about operations. I think that, um, again, because serverless uh, gives you the ability to deploy your code very easily, especially with the tools today, I don't think there's any need to have a separate role for it. You, the developers can do it. And with the uh, monitoring tools that you have and the monitoring that AWS provides, I think that developers can do it. They don't need uh, someone uh, um, to do it for them. Of course, I'm not talking about here uh, about customer support and things like that. They probably will require a different role, but I think that uh, the day-to-day -day, uh, monitoring and making sure that everything ticks as expected, I think the developers can do it in ease. On episode number 14, I was speaking with Forrest Brazil about CICD systems for the enterprise. And it was sort of interesting when the subject came up about whether or not companies that have already started their cloud journey and have started going down one path um, should switch to serverless now. They, they, they can. And I, I do recommend that wherever possible. It's ultimately just a really long process, though, usually. I, we, it's interesting. We see a lot of organizations now that are a few years into their cloud journey. But for them, that means that they have five-year-old tooling that, in some respects, is sort of legacy now. So they're that, that first wave of cloud folks, and perhaps they've developed this large, multifarious Jenkins instance that's serving an awful lot of cloud teams, and they're outgrowing that, and they're running into all kinds of problems with it. But at the same time, it took a lot of years to get people actually on board and using that and using probably shared tools and libraries and plugins that are accessible to everybody. So it's no joke. You can't just unwind that overnight, uh, but it can be done. And part of the way that can be done, as I was saying earlier, is trying to hand some of that control back to the individual teams so you don't make a central team a bottleneck for that in the first place. On episode number 15, I was able to speak with Mark McCann and Jillian Armstrong of Liberty Information Technology. And since they're so deep in this enterprise world, I asked them for their advice for other enterprises looking to adopt serverless. I think um, getting 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 access is, is number one. You know, get, you know, creating creating that access to, to some sort of sandbox environment where your developers can explore and experiment risk-free without getting shared out by some, some manager for what are you doing opening up an AWS account in your credit card. Um, so I think, I think you know, that was that was key to us. We had a sandbox environment that we could you know, ex explore new features um, and, and, and play around with it and, and actually even access the console. Um, beyond that, having a clear pathway to production is is critical you know, and our public cloud team have done a fantastic job really automating all of the you know security compliance you know or you know legal type um, secu you know, issues that we may have and making sure that they are part of that you know automated pathway to production so literally a developer could create something today have it in production this afternoon and um, that's how automated and how to uh, fast we can now deliver you know, capabilities so i think that clear pathway to production is is, is a big enabler for us as a, as a company i think you can't compromise on security. So there's a real enabler there around um, don't do anything risky. So make sure you know what your security um, profile is and make sure that you have a, an approach for, for dealing with security in, in, the, in the cloud space. And we've spent a lot of time working on threat modeling and making sure that we work with our security architects and security teams to, to really make it easy for developers to show the risks that they may have and show how to mitigate those risks. So I think uh, that, that zero compromise on security is, is 
number one for us. And ultimately for us, you know, um, if you're starting out, you know, testing is a big thing. You know, really focus on those good testing practices, making sure you have you know, testing, unit testing, integration testing, but it's different in a, in a service environment. But that allows you then to you know, go safely, go quickly, but with safety. Uh, so have a real good um, testing approach and, and invest in that. Observability is probably the big one. So uh, for us, you know, monitoring observability, making sure you know, you know where stuff is and you're, you're getting appropriately alerted and alarmed whenever things, things happen uh, is, is a big one for us. And from Jillian. I tell people, especially in big enterprises, the same for both serverless and AI, which is start now. Um, you're, you're already behind. If you haven't started, you need to start now. It takes a while to learn all the things that Mark's just said a lot of things. Uh, it takes a while to move your mindset um, from how we architected things before to serverless. Um, serverless is very different even than microservices. So even if you're very familiar with microservices, this is still a different paradigm. Um, so it just takes a little while to learn. It takes a little while to move all your existing um, practices and thinking about how you build your systems. So you need to start, you need to find places um, that are sort of safe to fail places where you can try things out um, and then gradually scale up. And I think the big thing is um, if you're if you run the company, do create time for people to learn. Do let them have that space and you know find your people who are really, really passionate uh, about it and then and then let them loose. On episode number 16, I spoke with Rowan Udell about step functions, and he had some interesting thoughts as to why serverless developers really need to sketch out how all of these components are working together. Yeah, look, I think with step functions, it really forces the developers to break up their applications into discrete steps, you know, things that uh, most developers already do in their head, it forces them to articulate it and write it down. And that obviously makes it easier for them to communicate that with another developer. And that other developer might be them in six months time. And so by forcing them to break these things down, you can see where there's a lot of parallels with serverless applications in general. You know, we talk about having functions do one thing and one thing well. And at the end of the day, I guess what this is forcing developers to do is make all of their implicit models that they, they have in their head and really make them explicit and, and define them and say, well, you can only do this thing after that thing or, or something like that. On episode number 17, I spoke with Brian LaRue and the discussion of vendor lock-in came up. Yeah, the lock-in discussion, um, I, I like to dig into it when people bring it up. So, you know, there there are concerns with lock-in. One of the concern, primary concerns should be price. Uh, this is the, the lock-in a lot of people suffered with Oracle. Where they squeeze you as the years go on and your data uh, becomes harder to move. Um, Amazon doesn't really raise prices. I, I haven't seen or heard of an instance where they do that historically in the last 10 years. So maybe that'll happen, um, but I'm not betting on it. Uh, it's a pretty competitive market and they're really interested in margins. And we know that Jeff Bezos always says, you know, your, your margin is my opportunity. So I don't see database getting any more expensive because I, I do feel that this is the main anchor differentiation uh, between clouds. And right now Dynamo is in a really good position. So it's, um, you know, a little bit expensive, but uh, as Spanner and Cosmos get better, uh, we're, they're going to start competing on price, which Amazon is more than happy to do. So I expect price to go down. That's not really a lock-in concern. 
Another locking concern is they shut the service down. Well, Amazon's still running SimpleDB, so <laughs> if there's anyone on that, they don't shut things down. That's what Google does. Uh, so I'm not worried about uh, I'm not worried about Amazon shutting down. So the next lock-in concern would be uh, breaking changes. Um, to be honest with you, I kind of wish Amazon would do some breaking changes once in a while, <laughs> but they don't. And if you want evidence of that, go look at the S3 API. They literally have API methods that have V2 in the name of the method. Um, Amazon uh, only does additive change. So you're not going to suffer a breaking change. You're not going to suffer um, a service shutdown. You're not going to suffer price pumping. So I don't know what the objection is to lock in. Uh, sure, there's got to be another one. I'm sure someone's going to cook one up, but it's just not a rigorous argument. And uh, for my time, the danger is picking the non-Amazon that goes away. So if, if my, if, if my um, solution to lock in is to use a venture-backed third-party vendor that's privately held, then I have done some very poor risk analysis because we all know how that story goes. On episodes 18 and 19, I had a long discussion with Michael Hart, and he had some thoughts on best practices with serverless. Best practices are like a spectrum. It's it's not it's they're not binary, and and there are there are things that people tell you you shouldn't do from a lambda or whatever. Um, but it's like if if a if you know what you're doing, of course, do it. But b just know what the sort of failure failure cases are, and if it's like, um, oh, okay, if I if I do this bad practice and my function's going to fail like half a percent of the time, and I know exactly how to deal with it when it does fail, then you, you forget about it. Um, you know, and I think this is true for things like, oh, don't don't make uh, TCP connections from your lambda and things like that. It's like, well, well, why? You know, let's break down why. That's considered a best practice, uh, a, a bad practice, or something like that, um, because you're making TCP connections every time you call HTTP. So, um, and little things like this, even even like having large lambdas and you know that sort of thing. It's like, well, measure it first. See if it's really a problem for you. Um, don't don't try and and prematurely optimize, um, because I'll tell you, we we at Bustle we have very large. We have very few, very large lambdas, and we do billions of invocations a month. We, you know, we do um, many, 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 many page views, um, and our latencies are very low. Um, and it's it's not perhaps as bad as you think. It, there are certain tricks you might need to do, like like you, um, we webpack all of our JavaScript into one single file, right? Um, so that there's no there's no file system calls being made um, whenever it's it's required. Um, and and we minify it, and so there might be people that go, oh, that that's kind of a gross hack. But well, all right, for us that's fine. You know, we we've got plenty of developers that know how to do that and that are that are comfortable um, doing that, and and would be less comfortable managing um, fifty or a hundred tiny functions, uh, maybe, uh, and dealing with with the ops of that because it's not it's not free. You know, a function isn't. A zero-cost piece of infrastructure. You, you still need to monitor them. You still need to maybe tune them. You still need, there's a whole bunch of things that every function you have you, you need to think about uh, a little bit and monitor and that sort of thing. So, 
yeah, so so even things like that, um, I think that there's this there's a spectrum for best practices, and and I would say try things out first. Um, maybe be be aware that it's a, it's a lever that you can pull, but but try them out first, and don't and don't stress too much about um, having the perfect. Um, there's there's no single way to do these things, basically. On episode number 20, I spoke with Sheen Brizzles from Lego, and he explained all of the lessons they learned as they went through their serverless journey. And one of the points that he makes is that sometimes customer experience trumps best practices. So a number of these things, I mean, these, these are all the lessons learned because early on we didn't have certain things said because no one knew these things were there but then started to learn about or know about these things. So then they become best practices for us. So obviously you learn something and then you put that into practice as one of the things. So uh, so if I talk about the, the, the lead versus uh, um, fat lambda, that's again came out of our uh, experience, especially dealing with the lambda functions behind the checkout flow where everything needs to be fast and crisp and uh, quick because yeah because customers otherwise will affect the customer experience so we we tried a couple of options we tried uh, we, we we thought of using step functions and we thought of splitting into different lambda functions but those approaches didn't give us the uh the the, the you know the fast response that we were looking for. So that's one of the reasons why I thought, okay, we need to be uh, open. So there is no right or wrong way. It You choose the approach required for that particular situation. And uh, someone, I remember someone uh, commented about uh, their approach because they have functions they uh, complete in few milliseconds. So if they had to split into number of different lambdas, they will obviously pay for a, you know, 100 milliseconds for every lambda, whereas a single lambda for them is less than a, you know, 100 milliseconds. So there is a cost implication as well. So, so a number of these different things, as you, as you, as you become more uh, familiar with the serverless, as you, as you gain more experience, you, you, you start to learn and then put into uh, practice. On episode number 22, I spoke with Brett McGowan from Google Cloud, and he explained why Knative is important for building developer platforms. Knative is an attempt to say, okay, let's just all build this together collaboratively. And then your like value add as a serverless platform sits on top of that. So um, by way of example, um, SAP, right, they wanted to give a serverless experience to their developers, but you can't say like, oh, hey, SAP developer, just deploy to AWS Lambda, deploy to Google Cloud, like, right, there's, there's just no integration. They, they are already building a platform. Um, so they built, they can build a platform on top of Knative that looks and feels like SAP and has all the, the idioms that SAP uses and it feels very natural to an SAP developer and they don't have to rewrite all the building, serving and eventing piece um, for them. So if you're gonna build a platform as a service, a serverless one, Knative gives you a lot of really, really, really useful building blocks to build on top of. In episodes number 23 and 24, I spoke with Ori Sagal about serverless application security. And we talked about the shared responsibility model of the cloud provider and why that is so important to give serverless such a good security posture right out of the box. 
in every public cloud uh, scenario, uh, the, you know, there's a shared responsibility model between you know, the customer and, and, or you know, the, the, the app owner and the cloud provider. Uh, and there's a line at some point, and really that line or where the line is, draw, uh, is drawn uh, really depends on the type of cloud model uh, or public cloud model that you're using. Um, and, you know, so we start, if we think about infrastructure as a service, then the cloud provider is responsible for the physical infrastructure. Uh, but any, anything above that is your responsibility. So the VM, uh, the, the host, uh, the, the hardening of the operating system, uh, and, and the users and, and everything, that's the responsibility of the cloud provider. Uh, and in serverless, that line reaches new heights, uh, which is something very interesting. Uh, because for the first time, you're really not responsible for the majority of uh, security requirements or um, um, demands. Uh, if you look at uh, you know PCI compliance requirements, um, and you compare, and I have an article about that as well, uh, between infrastructure as a service and functions or, or serverless, uh, you see that your role is reduced or your responsibility is reduced for, uh, to even less than half. Uh, which brings me to the next point that, theoretically speaking, uh, serverless applications actually um, are a terrific enabler for application security. It takes away a lot of the things that we usually miss uh, or we usually screw. Uh, so patching that we all know is, is um, you know, is a very tedious uh, uh, task that you have to constantly uh, be on top of. Um, so in serverless, your starting point from a security perspective is, is actually much better off. Uh, somebody else is responsible for almost everything except for the application itself, which is, uh, I think, sort of the future of uh, what I, I was hoping for application security to see all those patching and OS updates and uh, physical infrastructure taken uh, care of by somebody else and leaving you to, to deal with the things you actually understand about, which is your core business and the business logic that you own. In episode number 25, I spoke with Farrah Campbell and Danielle Heberling about the serverless community. And I asked Farrah why she thought that the serverless community was so welcoming. Uh, serverless is a is a new approach. It's it's inventing a whole new way to build software applications, um, and it's sticking. Um, and this community, I feel like everybody has a lot of work to do, a lot of big things to accomplish, and everybody's at a starting point. Everybody's willing to have open conversations without um, putting others down or you know explain to you why you're wrong about something. Everybody's at the same starting point and just trying to learn from one another. So building serverless applications obviously requires a different type of thinking. And so I thought that coming from a fresh perspective is probably a benefit. And here were Danielle's thoughts. Yeah, I agree. And I think just because everything's so new and serverless is a lot more than managed services, but that is a big aspect of it. So there's always, you know, eyes on, you know, the new thing AWS or GCP is releasing and people are talking about it and how they're using it, planning on using it. So that's what makes it fun too. And I also think it's a lot of fun to work with someone who's brand new to something because they have that beginner's mindset, that endless optimism. Um, so it can really be infectious in a good way. 
On episode number 26, I spoke with Chris Munns just as reInvent 2019 was wrapping up, and we discussed all the great new serverless launches around reInvent season. But we also talked about the plans to bring serverless to everyone in 2020. I think of customers across like three different life cycles. So there's, there's the completely net new kind of green customer who's like, what is this stuff? How does it work? Uh, they're the folks that are further along in their journey. They're they're building applications for production. They're they're you know doing real life, real world things with it, and they're like you know what I'm running into some rough edges. I'm looking for some best practices guidance. You know how do I scale this right? How do I do the best pack, you know patterns and stuff like yeah. that? And then there are the folks uh, like yourself, uh, like like Ben Keo from iRobot, uh, like many of our other heroes, many of our big customers, where you're like pushing on the bounds of what we can do and how we do it. And you know, across all those different areas, we we want to look to be able to tell, you know, tell stories, share advice, give guidance, gather feedback, uh, you know, continue to grow the space, grow the workloads. You know, we we use this uh, hashtag a lot, all of us, uh, which is you know, service for everyone. And I say, big picture, the view that we have is that we want to be in a position where uh, customers could say we're going to be serverless first. And those customers could be in any industry, in any vertical, in any size, building you know any type of an application. And then we want them to say, okay, we're going to be service first, and then we're going to knock it down based on a roadblock or a limit or a challenge. And then part of what my team has to do is, is okay, great. Tell me more about it. Tell me more about that story. Let me take that feedback and deliver it back to the PMs so that we could start thinking about what's the what is the potential solution that can be built for it. So, you know, I think in, in 2020, you're going to see my team and some of the technical evangelists and other folks inside of AWS uh, all over the place talking about serverless. Uh, you're going to see a lot more blog posts. You're going to see maybe some more instructive guidance uh, around certain topics. You know, we're going to keep doing uh, tech talks and Twitch and in a lot of conferences and a lot of places. Uh, if you're lucky, you'll get to see Eric Johnson up on stage, my man full of energy and excitement. Uh, you'll get to get to read, you know, the, the incredible stuff that uh, the team is writing as well. And um, yeah, you know, I just, you know, every year over the last five years, service is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Lambda is typically one of the top one to three topics at our summits or even this year as well. Yeah. Um, the talks are super packed. And so, you know, this space just keeps growing. The, the, the customers keep doing incredible things. Uh, it's changing the way they build applications. And we just want to continue to magnify and grow that, I'd say. On episode number 27, I spoke with Ant Stanley, and he had some thoughts about companies that are having success with serverless and what they have to do to help speed up the adoption. It'll hit, hit when there are more and more of these companies who come out and start publicly talk about the value of it. Um, it's been a bit of a weird one because I, I know, you know, we know some of the very early serverless adopters who get such great value out of it and they see it as a differentiator to what they do where they don't actually talk about the numbers. You know, they might go, go up on stage and talk about their, their technology, how they built this integration or how they monitor this but they don't talk about the numbers and they don't talk about the business value because they don't want their competitors to find out. They don't want to understand that this thing is a, is a bit of their secret sauce, you know? And I, I know a few vendors who, um, a few companies who've said, yeah, we love it, it's amazing. We'll talk about the technology, we won't talk about the numbers uh, because we don't want people to find out. And um, I think that as we get more and more adopters, we'll get more and more companies, you know, getting, in, uh, getting on stage, uh, you know, talking, doing case studies and talking about how, the amazing value they can get from this when they do it properly. Um, 
so yeah i, th I think it's going to come um and it, it's yeah it's it's you know i don't think we're far away whether 2020 or 2021 or 2022 but it, it is going to come and finally, on episode number 28, I spoke with Natter Dabbitt about AWS Amplify, but they have a really cool perspective on what it means to be a full-stack serverless developer. We, we think that what we're doing is a little different than, than anything that's kind of been out there before, I think. And um, we don't really have, you know, um, something to compare it to, but we, 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 we talk about it in a couple of different ways. You know, one of the things that we, we talk about is this idea of uh, full-stack serverless development where you're you know, kind of a developer or you're a team or you're a startup or you're a company and you wanna be able to kind of enable a developer or a team of developers to build you know, the front and the back end versus having the traditional maybe engineering team where you have kind of a back end developer and then you have a front end developer. We're kind of looking at it like, what if a you know, developer could just be looked at you know, as a full stack developer like you know, we, we've seen forever but instead of kind of the traditional full stack developer where the, the backend developer might be in charge of creating servers and creating a database and kind of like, you know, patching and, and dealing with all of the different backend resources, we could kind of take the serverless philosophy, use that, and then apply, you know, the front end developers and kind of like merge that together and, um, you know, enable a, a single developer to build out these full stack apps or, you know, or a team. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you enjoyed the first year of Serverless Chats. We will be back in 2020 with all new episodes every single week, with new guests talking about all kinds of amazing serverless topics. Plus, we really want your feedback, so send us an email, contact at serverlesschats.com. Let us know who you'd like to see as a guest, what topics you'd like us to discuss, and any other feedback that you'd like to share with us. I hope 2019 was an amazing year, and I hope that 2020 will be even better and that you'll go and build some amazing serverless applications. And that's this week's Serverless Chat. I want to give a huge thank you to everyone who was a guest this year on Serverless Chats. If you want to check out the show notes of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 29. For more serverless chats, be sure you subscribe and rate the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or any of your favorite podcast apps. You can also connect with me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you're interested in serverless and want to discover all the great new articles, use cases, and latest innovations from the serverless community, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week. <laughs>